I had the opportunity when I was living in Germany to visit a castle of a baron. This castle was outside the town of Bensheim, and the guy that I was with grew up with the man who was going to eventually become baron. Now, Germany doesn't have aristocracy anymore, but the land and the castle still belong to his family. So we walked in, and we were in an enormous entryway. We turned right, and we were in this huge, long dining room. We saw this magnificent bedroom suite. And then we walked through the castle, through several rooms that held the largest collection of antique Roman statues anywhere in the world outside of Italy. What happened when they came and they sacked Rome, they carried all this marble and they carried it up over the Alps and back down and they thought, what on earth are we holding this stuff for? So they all threw it all down in this one valley and that was where this castle was, so they picked it all up. The best part of the tour was a room that was three times this room size and it held horses, stuffed horses that were readied for battle. It held medieval soldiers holding up their axes like this and on the wall were these tapestries and all this great stuff was just amazing. And here was this 22-year-old kid about 9.30 at night walking through this castle and the man said, would you like to try on some mail? Oh yeah. I put that on. Now, it's supposed to drop down almost to your knees, and to me it was about right here, you know. I'm taller than the average man was in the Middle Ages. But it was so heavy, the last thing I wanted to do at that moment was get into a fist fight. <laughs> of course, here, a couple hours north of us, we could go to something even better at Hearst Castle. But the experience I had was stunning. It was a, a memory that is still with me 23 years later. And as I was looking around, I kind of had an idea of what it meant to have the divine right of rule. This guy wasn't even a king back in the 1600s or whatever it was that they made it. But all the other museums that you go through in Germany and France and you see how the medieval people lived, this guy's life was way up higher than the average peasant. It struck me as very interesting what living like a king meant. Ironically, the one man who had the greatest call on living like a king didn't. The king, this king, is famous for saying the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Today, we are going to learn that you and I must serve like the king. Now, remember where we're at. We're in Matthew, and we're going to finish chapter 20 tonight. The next time we get back to Matthew, we're going to see Jesus riding on the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem for the last time of that particular uh, coming. He is going to ride into Jerusalem again, Maranatha, 
Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Matthew has one more sermon coming, albeit the most widely misunderstood sermon of them all. But he spends a great deal of time on the events leading up to the most important event in history. Namely, of course, the crucifixion and the resurrection of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The God of glory blessing His people and bringing about His kingdom by dying and rising for us. And though tonight we're not looking at a sermon, strictly speaking, Jesus is going to try one more time to get it through our rock-shaped heads so that we understand what is going to happen when He gets to Jerusalem. What he says, starting in verse 17 of Matthew 20, is this. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve aside, and on the way he said to them, Behold, see, look, pay attention. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Whenever you see C in the Bible, I want you to think in your head what I just said. C, look, pay attention, behold, I'm telling you something important. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's telling them why they're marching to Jerusalem. Why are they going there? He says, we, by the way guys, you're coming with me. Aren't you glad about that? Our going. Jesus is making it clear. This is intentional. There are no mistakes. I don't want you to freak out when you see me hanging on the cross. Of course, they do anyways. And then he says, up to Jerusalem. The city where the prophets are murdered. Yep, that's the one we're going to. You're coming along with me. Jesus is very clear. He's speaking to the people who have followed him closely for at least three years now. And he wants them to understand that everything that's about to happen, as scary and as terrifying and depressing as it is, it's been planned from the beginning. And nothing is going to happen that wasn't planned by the Almighty Lord of Lords and King of Kings. This is on purpose. Now, Jesus also made this clear because He wanted His disciples to follow His example. He wants them to know ahead of time what He's planning on doing because He wants us to follow His example of leaving a an example of service, of sacrifice. Now this passage as a whole is going to make this point, and I'll show you how it does that. But I want us to read, first of all, 1 Peter 2.21. Jesus, Peter, says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. We are to learn here that Jesus is the supreme 
example, and you and I are to serve like the king. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful because one of the repeated heresies throughout the church history has been called Socinianism. Aren't you glad I told you that? Okay, I want you all to say it real fast. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. These were heretics that believed, and unfortunately many believe today, that Christ's death on the cross was merely to be an example. Merely to be an example of of what it looked like to be self-sacrificial for the good of others. Unfortunately, it fails in that because if that's all Jesus did on the cross, then it really didn't mean anything. The example theory of the atonement of the work that Christ did on the cross rightly understands that the Bible teaches that we should live sacrificial lives, but it wrongly believes that this is the whole message of the crucifixion. But it's understandable because if you don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, if you don't really believe in what we call the substitutionary theory of the atonement, that Jesus died on the cross to propitiate God the Father. He died to absorb the wrath of God aimed at all those who would trust in him to die for them. Then you have to believe kind of a half-baked lie. You have to believe something else. And this example theory that they came up with was what they came up with. Now again, I'm going to argue from this passage that part of the reason Jesus lived 30 plus years on earth was to show you and I an example of what it means to be God with skin on so that you and I, to the best of our abilities, can emulate that example. And he died to save us from our skin, our sin. Now, we're all sitting here 2,000 years later in our nice, comfortable, air-conditioned education building, and we live on the beautiful central coast. And so we read this and we think, got it, no problem. Let's just keep moving forward. But don't take this for granted. Study to show thyself approved. In other words, understand why Christ died. If you need to, Go to Wikipedia, I checked it out, look up penal substitution, and they do a decent job of explaining what's going on. Understand, then serve like your king. Serve like your king did for you 2,000 years ago. Now, of course, 2,000 years ago, what Jesus had just said struck them as odd strange wait why are we going to jerusalem if you know that they're going to murder you but obviously ignored and this is why we find out here that there were several strangely foot-like shaped mouths in our picture let's read verses 20 to 24 Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? 
She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are seeking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now this is an understandable request. I mean, and, and in fact, there's a measure of faith going on here at the base of the question. By now it dawned, at least by the boy's mom, that Jesus was claiming to be the Christ. And she thought, hey, the Christ, he's a king. If he's a king, then I'm going to do what I can to make sure that my boys are sitting as close in authority to the king as possible. Why then shouldn't she seek preferential treatment for her sons? But Jesus responded to the boys. Evidently, they were beside their mama. And he said to them, he said, you don't know what you're asking for. Sure we do. Lay it on us, Jesus. We got this. Now, of course, they had no idea. And Jesus was right. Shocking. So, Jesus replied, I've got three questions for you. What cup was Jesus referring to? When he says, are you able to drink my cup? Now the Bible, if you go back in the Old Testament, repeatedly uses the cup as a symbol of God pouring out his wrath. It happens in many places, one of which is in Psalm 75, 8. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And there are many verses like this, and I could go over them. It, it is frankly hard for me to think and conceive what James and John were thinking when they said, Sure, we'll take that cup. I'm really not sure other than they were talking without thinking. Man, I wish I could say that I've never let my tongue get ahead of my mind. Anybody else in the room with me on that one? Then, when Jesus said they will indeed taste that cup, I think Jesus intentionally changed the metaphor. Because Jesus as we said a moment ago, taste the cup. He drains to the dregs that cup of wrath against all who would trust in him. And I think that what Jesus is getting at is he's getting at you are going to suffer. You are going to experience and perhaps the wrath of man because you belong to me. Notice in verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left are not mine to grant. What does that mean? What is, what is Jesus trying to get at here? Well, this one's actually not that hard. To sit at the right hand or left is a common metaphor for being in power. 
roughly translated, it would be the number two and the number three man, respectively. Zebedee's wife wanted her boys to be above the foot-in-mouth guy, Peter. The problem is she stuck her foot in her mouth to try to make that happen. Now, we're going to find out in a couple minutes that the request to have this position of power, this position of influence, isn't wholly wrong. Again, it takes a measure of faith even to be in the position where the mother of the boys of Zebedee actually makes this foot-in-mouth statement. What is wrong with what she did is she asked for it, she went about it in the wrong way. And we as Christians must always remember the ends do not justify the means. So what does he mean, lastly, by this idea that these places are prepared for by my Father? This is an important point. And I want to I remind us that it's very often in the little phrases in Scripture that great importance resides. Jesus is claiming here the prerogative of God the Father to make decisions. Okay, that's easy. Come on, Greg, tell us something we don't know. Okay, but we have to understand what's going on if God the Son is going to say that it's God the Father who's making these decisions. It's worth noting that within the economy of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are completely equal in terms of their person. In fact, then it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. In in terms of their value, they are completely equal. And it remains true that there is a difference in roles. In this consideration, we see God the Father is in charge. And that that must be understood. And that is what Jesus is claiming. But you and I live in a culture that pays lip service to equality when treating equal things equally, which is what equality would mean, treating equal things equally, is the last thing that it wants. The Bible teaches that every single man, woman, and child has equal dignity, equal human rights as a human being. And it teaches that different human beings have different roles. In this sense, we are mirroring the Trinity even though we are not. When we as a culture learn to despise authority, to destroy legitimate differences, and to derogate truth, true worth, then we will be the kind of culture that won't treat equal things equally. Instead, we will fall to the greatest of injustices and call it tolerance or whatever other key new speak word our betters quote unquote want us to have when we make illegal aliens voters 
when we make murderers victims of injustice, and when we make animals more important than babies, we are not treating equal things equally. Instead, we are being as inhumane as we can be. And all of this comes from a misunderstanding of what equality and dignity as humans is and understanding a proper understanding of roles within a society. And all of this is based on intentional misunderstanding for political gain. We must treat illegal aliens as human beings. We must give them the respect that they deserve as human beings. But we don't make them voters. We must treat murderers as culpable because they are human and they have made horrible choices that result in necessary consequences. It has been said you can measure the justice of a culture by how they treat their prisoners. And I think that that is still true. We must treat animals with respect and in such a way that makes for the greatest good for the greatest number, so long as we understand that human babies are more important than mouse babies. Somebody here is thinking, wow, Pastor Greg, that was a lot out of that one little phrase. Indeed it is. But it comes from this small point that elaborates on a biblical worldview that understands God and humans and creation in a specific way. One that is out of favor today and has been replaced by a piecemeal approach to putting a worldview together. Oh, I like this from Buddhism. I like this from Islam. I like this from... But it can't hold water. This piecemeal approach to worldviews can't hold water. It cannot satisfy the demands of reality. And reality has a way of slamming up against those who deny it right in their face. And in our story, it remains true that there were more than three people who had foot-shaped mouths. The other ten were hanging around and were upset by the whole interchange. I can, using my imagination, I can imagine them thinking at first, dang, I wish I would have asked Jesus to sit at his right hand or his left hand. And then they heard Jesus rebuke them. And then I could see one of them standing up saying, you idiot, I can't believe you are so selfish. Why can I imagine that? Because I can imagine myself being one of those ten. Anybody else here with me in that one? Jesus, in one of the most important passages of this kind in the entire Bible starts in verse 25. Jesus called Pete, Andrew, all the rest. Hey guys, come here for a second. Jesus called to them, to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. Now, this is the meat of the passage. Everything so far is pointing to this, and everything afterwards is coming from this passage. We have to get this. Jesus says that the most important position in the kingdom of God is that of a servant. It is not wrong to say, how can I be the most important person in the kingdom? It is not wrong to say, I want to grow in my influence in the kingdom of God. How do we do it? By bringing ourselves down. That's exactly what Jesus is saying right here. Jesus is the king. Make no mistake about that. And his example, far from living in a great big castle on the other side of the hill from Bensheim, Germany, for those years that he was a suffering servant, he did not live as a ruler on high. Jesus' example was one who served others, served us even unto death. And because Jesus is the wisest, most knowledgeable, clearest thinking person in the history, in history, he made it clear that living like this is not what you should expect from the rulers of the Gentiles. But this is what makes Christianity so intriguing. Living like Jesus says here is what makes Christianity enticing. What kind of person who gets in a position of power serves other people? I mean, you get to be CEO, you get to be manager of a shift first, and you're the boss of that shift. You can tell people what they can do and what they can't do. You can tell them when to go on break and when they can't. I'm going to use that for my advantage. That is what people think. That is what people expect. And you start living in such a way that you use your influence you use your power to make their lives better, and they notice, they recognize something is different about this person. They are not living to become the Fortune 500 top executive of the year. No, I'm living because I want to get in as high a position in the kingdom of God as I can. And that means here, it's going to be as low as I can. Because Jesus is the wisest, most knowledgeable, clearest thinking person in history, Jesus here gives you very solid wisdom to be the very best you can be. And we must follow Christ's example. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You cannot imitate Christ in his saving work. But you can imitate him in most of his other work. You can be creative. You can be loving. You can be ambassador for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
you can serve. You can serve like your king. Now, Jesus has this wonderful teaching opportunity that was given to him by the mother of the sons of Zebedee coming and she says, I've, I've got a, a favor to ask of you, Jesus. What would you like? Make my boys your number one and number two. I, I want them to be in high positions. So Jesus takes that learning opportunity and he says, here you go. You want to be number one? You want to be number two? This is what you got to do. And Matthew then tells the story of what happened immediately following, starting in verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Note the two examples. This is important to get. The Zebedees positioned Jesus for positions of honor. They did so in the same manner as the men who were asking to receive their sight. They, they acknowledged him as Lord. They acknowledged him, maybe not at that moment, but they acknowledged him as the son of David, the Christ, who is to be the king. They did that. Both, both of these two groups of two men had serious requests. But the result of those two requests couldn't be more different. One was rebuffed and one was granted. One was met with indignation by those who already followed Jesus and undoubtedly claimed to see. The other was met by those who could now see when Jesus opened their eyes and they followed him on his path to the crucifixion. The setting here was not a mistake. When you and I go to Jesus and you say, Jesus, bless me. By the way, you should do that. You should go to Jesus and say, bless me, Jesus. Because there is no one else who's going to do it. And because he is sovereign, he can grant your requests. But when you go to Jesus and ask him to bless you, make sure that you're asking him for the kinds of things he wants to give you. If you ask him, for example, put me in a nice cushy job where I can boss people around, probably not going to get it. And if you do, watch out, it might just not be a blessing might be an opportunity for great suffering. If, on the other hand, you go to Jesus, Jesus, open my eyes so that I can see you. My friends, that is not a request Jesus will deny. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
I've said this before. The most important spiritual discipline is Bible study. Bible study, Bible memory, Bible getting into, and as we sang this morning, pressing in to the Lord. Go to God's word and get close to him so that you know what he's thinking. Get right up in his lap, as we said in in the beginning of Matthew 18, and sit there so you know what he wants to give you. Go to him and find the promises in his word. And then say, Abba, I want you to fulfill your promises for me so that I can be a blessing to all those who are around me. That, my friends, is a prayer your father will not ignore. If you ask for God to bless you so that you can serve like your king, he will look on that with favor. What the ultimate result of these formerly blind beggars now turned disciples, we don't know. I think, this is my opinion, you can disagree with me on this one if you want, I think they became disciples of the Lord and they followed him right on through. And they're in there in part because there were other disciples of Jesus who were there. Hey, remember those two guys? They're still a part of the church in Jerusalem or, or they went out and they were a part of the church in Antioch or wherever they went. Nah, that's my opinion. You don't have to believe that. But I think that's kind of what's going on here. Because they asked the Lord to see him. You, ask your Lord to let you see him. You cannot imitate Christ in miraculously healing blind people. I, I mean, I believe that the Holy Spirit can give you the gift of healing and you can be the person he uses. But, but we don't experience him giving people the ability to just walk up and heal someone. That's not how we experience life now. But you can imitate him in his compassion. You can imitate him in his desire to provide. You can imitate Jesus in his willingness to put himself underneath God the Father. You can imitate Jesus in his willingness to serve. You can serve like your king. So ask yourself, who are the blind people in my neighborhood? Who are the blind people in my sphere of influence? who need to see what Jesus looks like while you're living in your home, while you're working at your job, while you're serving in the city of Santa Maria? How can you demonstrate the loving service of the one who stepped down so much further than it's even possible for us to imagine? How can we bring ourselves down so that we can serve the people around us by lifting them up to the throne of grace. How can we be blessed so that we can be a blessing? But I warn you, if you ask the Lord those questions, if you ask him to bless you like that, you better be willing to follow where he leads you.
and to serve like your King. Almighty Heavenly Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit who lives in us to enable us to do this, to be your hands and your feet as we walk through this world. Give us grace, Jesus, so that we will glorify you. Bless us indeed so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.